listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. I haven't preached in four weeks, so I hope you brought your lunch. I've got a lot to say. I'm just kidding. I do have a lot to say, but by God's grace, I won't say more than what Jesus said. Because what we read today probably causes some of you to go, oh, good, finally, a sermon on hell. Those of you who grew up in those hellfire and brimstone churches. But that's not what Jesus was talking about today, although he did mention it. And we're going to ask the question, why did he mention that and what did he say? But what Jesus is doing in this little section that often we focus on elements and locations and and, and are thinking more theologically, Jesus is addressing a very practical thing going on in the lives of the religious authorities. I'm very thankful for the guys who preached while we were back in kids, uh, kids ministry the last month. We ha- always have a great time when we're back there. And, and all of you come and, and you say, hey, were my kids good for you today? And I always go, they were fantastic. That's code for they're just kids, right? They did what they do for me that they do for everybody else, right? That's what they do. They're kids, and that's okay. We love them. We go back there because we want to make it very visible to our children Um, that they are important to me. I want them to know that they are just as much a part of the body of the church as the the adults and those that are serving in in the most robust way because they're the future. They're They're the present. They're the reality, the blessing that we have. And so we do that every year. And two, in just a kind of a backdoor way of saying, hey, y'all, if I can do it, Y'all can do it. So if you're thinking that God may want to use you in kids' ministry, we'd love to talk to you about what that looks like. Last week, Michael, as he preached, was teaching on what Jesus had to say about money. And he used a really weird kind of parable. He talked about a dishonest manager. Those of you who were here, you, you read that the first time and you're like, wait a minute, sounds like Jesus is telling a story about a bad guy who seems to get off and, 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 and Jesus is actually commending him for it. That's weird. That's kind of what he was doing. But what he was showing was that the world is shrewd in the way they use earthly money. They use it in all kinds of creative ways in order to benefit themselves. What Jesus wants for his followers that also have to have the earthly wealth If we're going to pay bills, if we're going to accomplish the things that have to be accomplished in life, then we're going to need currency. And right now that's, you know, a a dollar or more or more as it's going up and up. What Jesus says is what I want my followers to be doing is, is being as shrewd as the world using this earthly wealth that will corrupt to the end, but using it in such a way that is building the kingdom and drawing others to the message of the gospel. That's what I want to see. 
so that you don't serve money. You rather serve God and use the money that he allots to you, which belongs to him that you're a steward over for the purposes of the kingdom. And that's a big message in and of itself. And then it says in verse number 14 of that same chapter, which, man, I did put at the bottom of the list, Jesus said to the Pharisees, who, by the way, were lovers of money, when they heard all these things that Jesus was saying, they ridiculed him. Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. They were ridiculing Jesus' instruction on how to use money for the purpose of the kingdom rather than pursuing money for the purposes of your own gain and fulfillment. The Pharisees were laughing at him. They were ridiculing this weird, strange teaching. Of course you're saying this. You don't have any money. Jesus looks at at them and says, You're the ones who seek to justify yourselves in front of those who are watching. You're ridiculing and making fun of me because of the truth I'm teaching, yet in your ridicule, you're actually trying to make these that are listening think you know the truth better than I. But here's what the reality is. He says, but God knows your hearts. Takes me back to an Old Testament scene. The book of Samuel where where a king is going to be chosen by God because the people's choice of king has proven himself to be wholly unqualified. You know his name. The first king's name was Saul. And now it's God's turn to choose a king. And whose house did the prophet go to for God to show him whose king, who would be his king? The house of who? Jesse. Jesse had several boys, starting from the oldest, the most handsome, the strongest, the tallest, the most visibly qualified. And God said, no, not him. And then the next, well, if it's not the oldest, then it must be the next. No, not him. Well, then it must be the next if it's not, nope, not them. Until they get to almost the last in the home. And Jesse's looking around and he says, I I don't know who you're coming to see then. Well, do you have no more children? Well, actually there is one more, the runt of the litter. Who's out there keeping the sheep because nobody else wants to do it. He pulled the short straw. His brothers make him go keep the sheep. Send somebody after him, the prophet says. The runt of the litter comes into the house. The one disdained by all his older brothers stands before the prophet And he says, Lord, is this the one? God says, yep, that's the one. Why? Because that one is a man after my own heart. You see, God looks on the outside, he says. Man looks on the outside. God looks on the inside. Jesus says, you're performing for those around who think you to be justified, but God knows your heart. And then he jumps into this story. There was a rich man. To show the Pharisees the condition of their heart, Jesus tells a story. Is this a true story? Is this a parable? Well, 
end of the day, we can't say either way definitively whether it is a true story or a parable. But there's one thing that Jesus does that he doesn't do in any other parable. He names one of the individuals. Most of the time, Jesus tells a parable. He's just speaking of hypotheticals. And you know that he's speaking in hypotheticals. This time, you're wondering, is Jesus talking about people who aren't real to make a point? Or is Jesus talking about an actual account? I don't know. I like to lean toward the fact that this is an actual account. But at the end of the day, I don't really know. But Jesus says a story about two contrasting characters, two very different destinations, two impossible requests, and one sober warning. If you've got the Oasis Church app on your phone, you should be able to find our notes under the Sunday setting. If you've got your phone, don't have the church app, then why not? You need to download it, Google Play or the App Store. But you have version, the Bible app on your phone. You can find us in the live events. Well, all it does is just show you my outline. It will give you no indication of when I'm about done, okay? It'll just show you, it'll just show you the path I, I thought about following last evening. It might not be where we go. But at any rate, you'll enjoy. Jesus tells a story about two contrasting characters. Let's look at them. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. Let's think about this. He's a rich man. It's a man of, of unimaginable wealth. And I know that, that you think, I don't know, I can imagine a whole lot. But if I were to say millionaire to you, you would go, yeah, I could, I could imagine what it would be like to be a millionaire. But what if I were to say a billionaire? What if I were to say a multi-billionaire? So much money that you couldn't spend fast enough because of what is invested is growing faster than you could spend it. Now that's a lot of money. Jesus is making a point about a man who has way more than he needs so that in reality he has no felt needs in life. How do we see that? Well, we see what he wears in a place where where many folks would only have one garment to wear, maybe a couple of undergarments at most. This man wore the most extravagant. He wore purple. You know, what's so significant about purple? Purple cloth was made with a dye, if I'm, if I'm thinking correctly, from a secretion from a worm that is found in a particular place in the world. It's very rare, and so it was very expensive in order to make cloth with this purple dye. This guy wore it all the time. He also wore linen undergarments, okay? So that means that his clothes weren't scratchy and they were the best of the best of the best. He never worried about what he would wear because what he wore was so extravagant. Not only did he wear purple and fine linen, but he feasted sumptuously every day. Now the Jews would come on pilgrimages to Jerusalem as often as they could, but three specific times of the year for for very important feasts. And there would be a lot of food to be consumed. If you weren't able to go to Jerusalem, you would try to celebrate those same feasts in your home. But they were 
periodically throughout the year. When we eat our Thanksgiving and Christmas meals, that's probably not what you had last night. Because those come at special occasions. But what if your table was spread at every meal like Thanksgiving? Well, number one, that's going to take a whole lot of preparation. It didn't matter. He had all the servants he needed. That's going to take a lot of food. didn't matter. He had all the food he wanted. In a time where food was scarce, this man had way more than he needed. Way more. And could have been very helpful to others. This man had it all. But Jesus tells about another man. But at his gate, verse number 20, was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with, with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Notice that this poor man was laid at the gate. Not only was this man rich, not only did he have all the clothing and the food and all the money, but obviously he had an extravagant home because it had a gate in front of it. This man seems as though was abandoned at this rich man's gate because no one else wanted or could provide for him. And they just laid him there. They just dumped him there in hopes that the rich man or his entourage would come out, see him in need, give him something. Begging was common. We see it even uh, on our street corners in the cities in which we live. And, 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 and I know that you feel as confused about that as I do at times. What's the best thing to do? You know, it's a great conversation to have. We happen to have a guy in our body who, who has some answers for you. It's Justin. He works with the mission. And, and he's got some great thoughts on how we deal with those in need, especially that are seeking money at the corners. But, but it was very common for the destitute to sit and hope and ask for what they called alms. Just an offering, just a gift, just somebody willing to show me a little pity, maybe even the beginnings of a little compassion because I have no way in which to earn my own living. I have no way in which to provide for myself. In fact, God wrote that into his law code. that The Israelites were to regularly give to those who were in need. That should have been part of their normal routine. So this guy Lazarus is dumped at the gate of the rich man. And notice a little bit about his name. His name Lazarus is a derivative of the Hebrew name Eleazar. Which ironically means God helps. God helps. Really? This man is an invalid? Who can't care for himself. He's laid there. So obviously couldn't get there by himself. He's dumped at the gate. He has nothing for which to provide for himself. He has no one to help him. And it says not only that. That he's laying there covered with sores. One of the writers, uh, writers I read behind said that uh, that, that particular phrase was a, was a common medical phrase, which is, shouldn't be too surprising at all because what was Luke, one of Luke's occupations was a physician. 
So this idea that he was covered with open sores. He was suffering. Destitute. An invalid. Had nothing. But his name means God helps. That doesn't seem to be working out well for him at all. Not only that, hoping for compassion from the rich man, it says that the dogs, which to the Jews was a very, very unclean animal. I'm sorry for y'all that have dogs in, in your home and you just love them. and they, You call them your fur babies and I love you. I don't get it, but I love you. We love our animals in our world. That's not what these dogs were, okay? These were scavengers. These were dirty animals that they considered highly unclean. But what they were doing was coming to this hurting, suffering man and licking the open sores. Now, we would say, yuck. And yes, that is pretty disgusting to think about. But probably the only relief that man had at all. He had no one to care for him. He had no one to wrap up his body. He had no one to to love and show compassion. But these filthy dogs, who interestingly enough, by their contact, would have made him ceremonially unclean, was getting what comfort he could just from the licking of the source. Two very different characters. The rich man. Do you think, do you think the community knew his name? I'm thinking probably so. Don't, don't we have a tendency to know the names of the most wealthy in our circles? But Jesus just called him rich guy. And Lazarus, God helps. An invalid with nothing and no one and no promise of anything. Jesus continues with the story. He says these two seemingly individuals that look so very different found common ground on a particular day. Verse number 22. The poor man died. You read along in the verse, it says the rich man also died. Two opposite ends of the spectrum. Yet on the same day, Jesus says, they both died. Now, interestingly enough, the Pharisees would have seen the rich man as evidenced of a righteous individual. In their theology, in their way of thinking, because of the way they saw the Old Testament. When God says, if you'll obey me, I will bless you. They presumed and assumed and codified in their teaching that visible evidence of God's favor and God's blessing because of the righteousness that he accepts in you will be seen by the blessing that you have in life. So the richer the follower of Yahweh, the more righteous the follower of Yahweh. In the same way, 
the visible evidence of God's judgment on one who was not pleasing to God, whose righteousness was not acceptable to God, would experience the judgment that comes from him in this life. So the more suffering you went through, the more evidence of your unrighteousness. So when Jesus says these two men died, the Pharisees would have been thinking, all right, I think I might know where he's going here. Their expectation would have been that the rich man be in the presence of God and that the poor man be on hold for judgment. Jesus says both of these guys died. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Let's think about not just the two characters, but the two very different destinations. Now, Abraham's side. What does this mean? Well, this doesn't have an Old Testament context. There is no Old Testament reference to Abraham's side. But in the New Testament era, there was, according to the rabbinic tradition written in the Talmud, there was the idea that there was a place where the dead souls of the righteous would go and await their vindication. This would be where they would go to in order to wait on the last days and for God to vindicate their righteousness and for them to enter into whatever it is God has for them. Their expectation was God's kingdom on earth, but there's something that happens after death. Abraham's side, if you've got the King James, it says Abraham's bosom. It was a, it was a, a, not this one writer I read thought, said, is this a place where everyone gets to take turns snuggling with Abraham? No, that's not what happened. It's not a big fluffy Abraham that everybody gets to hold on to. It's just a way of imagining where the dead righteous go. There's another word that the Talmud uses for this same place, and that is the word paradise. You run your mind fast forward, Jesus on the cross. The one thief says, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Jesus says, verily, verily, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Okay. So there's something to this because Jesus is referring to it. And he's not saying, you think this is true, so I'm going to... No, he's speaking as though this is legit. So what does that tell us? This is legit. The poor man goes to Abraham's side, to the place where the righteous, and already the Pharisees are scratching their head. Wait a minute. The poor man, the one under God's judgment on earth, how did he get to the place of the waiting righteous? The rich man, he says, also died and was buried. I find that interesting too. It doesn't say anything about Lazarus being buried, does it? What what would have happened to Lazarus' body? Well, if he had no one to care for him, if he had no money to provide for his own entombment, however you think about that, then he would have been taken, his body, 
and thrown into the city of Dumps, which was the valley of the sons of Hinnom, which was a place where things just burned all the time, just to the southwest of Jerusalem, which interestingly enough was referred to by the Jews as Gehenna. Lazarus was taken and tossed into the dump. The rich man was taken and buried with every reason to believe all the pomp and circumstance, all of the to-do, but yet the rich man died. And he opened his eyes in Hades, being in torment. Hades, what is this? Well, Hades is a Greek mythological name for a mythological god of the underworld, Hades. You've seen the Hercules cartoon. He's the dude that's got the fire on top of his head. He's the mythology. But it's also a term that refers to, in the Greek mythological realm, as the place of the dead. Now, how it comes into the New Testament is that You think about the Old Testament, when it was translated into Greek, the Old Testament had a word called Sheol. Sheol, in in the mind of the Jewish people, was the grave, the place of the dead, the place we don't really understand or know about, but we just know that when somebody dies, they're put in the ground, and, and we call it Sheol. When they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, Everywhere the Old Testament says Sheol, they replaced it with Hades. So you got to think, every time you're hearing Jesus talk about Hades, at least you've got to figure he's bringing in that Old Testament thought of Sheol, the place of the dead. But I find this interesting. He says the, that the rich man died and he found himself in Hades being in torment. Torment has to do with what the Jews would refer to as Gehenna. The place of the dead where there is anguish and torment. So Jesus is now taking two very familiar terms and he's allowing elements of both to exist. As he's telling this story about one that no one would have thought would have made it to Abraham's side. And the other that no one would have dreamed would have awakened The place of the dead, certainly not being in torment. Jesus goes on. He saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. These two different locations reveal to us the reality of life after death. Now in the Jewish authority scheme, there were Pharisees and Sadducees. Say those two with me. Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees believed in the afterlife and the resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in an afterlife or a resurrection. And so you know there was a... I'm not going to tell that joke. Those of you who have been around church, if you've not ever heard it before, you don't want to hear it. It's not funny. It is kind of funny, but I'm going to tell it. There was certainly a lot of debate between these two groups about an afterlife or no afterlife. Jesus is confirming, oh no, this is legit. Life after death is real. And this idea of of the righteous being one place and the unrighteous being another place, legit. 
It's absolutely true. In this situation, they seem to be together. Now, the, the early Jewish or early Christian Jewish era way of thinking was that paradise and Hades was in the middle of the earth. And that there were two compartments, one side and the other. You say, is that true? I don't know. I'm just going to say what Jesus said. Lazarus died, went to Abraham's side, wherever that's at. The rich man died, went to Hades, wherever that's at. And wherever those things are at, the rich man saw Abraham and could communicate to him. And he spoke to him, asking two very impossible requests. He saw Abraham afar off and he called out, verse 24, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. Jesus is describing a place of anguish and torment for the unrighteous. And Jesus is implying that the one they thought was righteous ended up there. The one everyone would have figured was unrighteous ended up in the place of comfort and blessing and rest. Now this one rich man is crying out saying, Father Abraham, can you send Lazarus just to dip his finger in water to cool my tongue? Just a little relief is all I'm asking for. Yet in life, just a little relief was all that Lazarus never got. Think about all the times that man went in and out and could have helped this destitute invalid. But in his mind, he saw one unclean, ew, Those unclean dogs are licking you. If I touch you, I'll be ceremonially unclean. Nowhere in the law. But of the tradition of the religious authorities, yeah. If if I help you, then I'm helping one that God hates. Nowhere in the scripture. According to the traditions of the religious authorities, sure. Every time he walked by him, he had to ignore the word of God saying, help those in need. I come to those in need, and I want you to help them. I want you to reach toward them. I want you to demonstrate your love for me in the way you love others. And yet this one walked by, and now he's asking for the one who never received his compassion to come and give him a little relief. Unfortunately for him, Abraham says, my child, verse 25, Remember in your lifetime, you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. Now he's comforted here and you're in anguish. He can't come to you, verse 26, because between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. I'm sorry, buddy. It's not possible What you ask cannot be a reality. It's how God set it up. This is his design. We can't subvert his plans. You're where you are. He's where he is. And he continues on. And he said, 
Verse 27, but I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may warn so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They've got Moses and they've got the prophets, they've got the Old Testament. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. If Lazarus can't come from me, can you send him back to my brothers so that they can avoid my error? Can, can, he, can you send him back so he can tell them the truth? And Abraham says, they have the truth. God's word is truth. They don't need someone to come back and warn them. They have the truth. If they ignore it, they like you will find their place with you. And this is, this is a hard truth. And I'm imagining you can hear a pin drop because most of those in Jesus' entourage were poor with nothing. And those that were the authorities that, were, that, that had the ability to, to dictate how worship would be done and, and, how, and who could get into what place and, and who would be approved and not, they're the ones being held to task. Jesus says they've got the Scripture if they'll hear it. But it's not possible for one to go back. But he does give one solemn warning in verse 31. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now we think about that referring to Lazarus, but we know that there was another who rose from the dead. That these guys didn't fall on their knees to hear and to, and, and, and to confess and to repent. What did they do? They made up lies. About how he was stolen and, and we'll give you money to keep this. Look, look. If they won't hear God's word, then they're not going to listen to one come back from the dead. What Jesus was on the scene doing was teaching God's word. What Jesus was on the scene doing was being God's word. What Jesus was inviting people to do is what the law and the prophets had all said. Turning toward God. Turning with a heart of repentance and humility. Turning toward Him in order to receive a righteousness that you can't earn. And no bull or goat or lamb can affect you completely. If you're going to be righteous, it's going to be from God. Now there's coming a time where that righteousness is going to be written on your heart like the law. And Jesus is saying that time is now because it is me that you turn to. In order to receive the righteousness that is from God. That will allow you entrance into his kingdom. You folks are deceiving yourselves. And you're trying to deceive everybody around you. But God knows your heart is wicked. Because you have rejected me. Say well. How did Lazarus get to that place? Apparently because Lazarus had received 
him. That's who Jesus was going to. The broken, the outcast, the destitute, the sinners, the publicans, the ones that everybody thought were filthy, dirty, no good for nothing. Those are the ones that Jesus came to with an invitation of, follow me. And when they did, like Father Abraham, who believed God's word and was counted as righteous. Jesus is saying to everybody listening, these teachers of the law, they have perverted God's word. They are teaching you a religion of self-righteousness. They are teaching you that following God is about keeping rules and being right when all others are wrong. And I'm telling you, they are leading you toward destruction. I'm leading you toward repentance that results in forgiveness that will give you redemption and a righteousness not your own, but from your Father who in his grace, mercy, and love has sent me to invite you. A solemn warning, but an encouraging reminder as I'm thinking about those following Jesus, looking around going, I think we're making the right choice. I I think we're following the right one. Those guys are all mad at us. We're probably going to lose everything, lose our jobs, lose our family. But I think we're on the right track. And that indeed was the truth. The point that Jesus makes, and there are nine. Number one, earthly riches and security do not prove God's blessing. They certainly don't prove one's righteous standing with God. Principle number two, an unrighteous heart is proven by one's lack of compassion for the needs of others. He thought he was righteous, but he proved otherwise by his actions of disdain. The point number three, the way of uh, self-righteous religion will result in eternal anguish. And there are plenty to choose from self-righteous religions. All of them outside of Christianity will lead you to believe that if you are going to enjoy blessing after death, then it is all up to your actions. Only Christianity says that you can have new life today that will extend into eternity, but only by faith. And only in Jesus. Principle number four. True righteousness begins with repentance and faith in Jesus Messiah. By embracing him and embracing his mission. Please don't tell me about a prayer you prayed at Bible school. When you were five years old. Unless that was a prayer of dependence on Jesus that you've been following. If that's the uh, the entrance into a relationship that has brought change into your life. Don't talk to me about a baptism you had when you were 4 or 13. But yet there's been no result of a relationship with Jesus in your life. That's religion, y'all. That won't get you anything but wet and a little certificate. If you know Jesus as Savior... 
It's because you've trusted him as Messiah. You've embraced his message. And you'll be, be on mission with him. Now, will you always work that out right? No. You'll fall off the wagon all the time. I do. thing about it is he'll back that thing up, let you get right back on. Principle number five. Followers of Jesus not only represent him with the gospel message, but also in our compassionate response to the needs of others. Do you see the needs that God sees around you? Are you moving toward them? I know it's complicated and confusing, and sometimes you just don't know what to do. But if you're in the family, there's a pull toward them as you represent Jesus in their life. Yes, representing the gospel, but representing his compassion. Principle number six, hell is a real place of anguish and torment and the destination of those who ignore God's clear word. Pastor Kevin, I don't like that. Don't argue with me. Argue with the Lord. I don't understand everything God's word has to say about hell. I just know it talks about it a lot. I'm willing to debate it. I'm willing to discuss it. I'm willing to try to figure out all we can figure out. All I'm saying is, Jesus identified it as a real place. If I'm wrong, no harm, no foul, right? If I'm wrong about it, and we're all able to go, dude was screaming about a place that didn't exist. Anybody complaining? No. But if it does, then I better tell you the truth. I'm telling you all I know. Number seven, heaven is also a real place, but requires a righteousness from God that comes only through faith in Jesus. Number eight, the word of God is all one has and all one needs to understand and receive God's righteousness through Christ. And number nine, to ignore the Word of God is to ignore the God of the Word and face His judgment. But you ain't got to. You ain't got to. You can embrace Jesus. You can have your sin forgiven. You can be given a new life. You can be given a new purpose for right now. And instructions, open book test on how to walk it out. And an eternal destination that I won't even try to begin to explain. Only by faith. And only by faith in Christ. Amen? Let's stand together. With heads bowed, with eyes closed, I want to ask you one question, and that's this. Do you know Jesus by faith? I don't mean do you know about him, I don't mean can you answer all the questions on the Bible test. I mean, do you know him because you have responded to the word of God that says you're broken and you're in need of a Savior and his name is Jesus who died in your place and for your sin and rose from the dead to prove that what he did was valid. Do you know Jesus? Are you following him? If you're not, boy, today would be a great time right there where you're standing in your heart to say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I am broken. I know that there is nothing I can do to earn righteousness. I I can't buy it. I can't do enough good to get it. But I believe that righteousness 
comes from you by faith in Jesus. God, I believe that Jesus died for me. I believe that he rose from the dead. I believe he's alive right now. And best I know how, I want to trust him and him alone as my Savior. I want him to be my Lord. I want him to be my King that I don't see right now. But I'm going to keep following till the day I do. If that's your heart, if that's your desire... And Romans tells us everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Brought from death to life, brought out of darkness into light, redeemed, forgiven. If that's you, please don't go home unless you tell me. But either way, just know faith in Christ brings righteousness from him. And then we get all week long to live it out. Looking for the needs to represent Christ in. So Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to be here. God, I just pray for that one who may be here without Christ. Please don't let them leave today without surrendering themselves to you. God, give them the courage to tell somebody, Hey, I, just, I think I just trusted Jesus today. Give us an opportunity to walk with them, to answer some questions if they've got them, to help point them toward your instructions for how to live this thing out on a daily basis for your glory. God, as a body, we want to unite together our hearts with those that are hurting so far away from us in this world, the nation of Ukraine. God, those that have had to leave their homes and are in a place that's foreign to them. God, those who are still close to their homes with every intention of defending it to the best of their ability. God, for the believers that are in that place that are, that are consistently communicating hope, not in a military, not in a nation, not in a no-fly zone, but in the God-man whose name is Jesus. Father, I pray that many in a time of helplessness and hopelessness will find hope in Jesus in that part of the world. God, I pray for the wicked that are fueling the wickedness. God, bring them to themselves. Break their hearts. May your love break through. Seems impossible to us, but it's certainly not impossible to you. We don't know what to do. God, we ask that you will show us the way and give us the courage to say yes to whatever that is. Thank you for the opportunity we have to be together as friends. Send us out into this broken world as representatives of the hope we have in Jesus so that we might represent him well. For it's in his name that all the voices church said, amen.